Let's take our Bibles and turn to the first of two passages this morning. These passages parallel each other, but we're going to start in Matthew chapter 7. And then in a couple minutes, uh, we're going to turn over to Luke chapter 6. But let's start in Matthew 7 this morning. This may be one of the most um, sobering passages in the Gospels, uh, simply because it eliminates the possibility of us taking our salvation for granted. Uh, we, we have to, as we're looking at the sayings of Jesus, we have to look at both uh, those that are encouraging and, and what we would say may be easy, and also those that are challenging and difficult. A lot of the sayings of Jesus, as I've studied through this and kind of worked through this series, a lot of the sayings of Jesus are very difficult. Again, we talked last week about Jesus being portrayed and recast as kind of this soft, tolerant, um, everything goes, uh, kind of wonderful teacher that, that never challenged people and never demanded anything in their life. And when we really, when we really, really study Jesus, that's not who he was. Jesus made some very difficult statements and challenged people on their sin and called people to repent. In fact, it was the first message that he had was repent. So he's calling for a new life, and he's then going to provide the opportunity uh, for a new life through his death and resurrection. So there are difficult sayings that Jesus has, and, and this is one of them. And his words here really uh, get our attention as they uh, kind of show us this concept that just because we've prayed a prayer uh, at one point, or just because we go to church and we, um, you know, believe that God will forgive us, uh, that that is not an anything goes thing. That there is an expectation from the Lord. There is a strong, high standard that God establishes for those that have received Him and those that love Him. And eternity is not just secured uh, because we uh, decided at one point that, oh, my life needs change, so I'll pray the prayer, and then I can just do whatever I want. That's not how it works. God calls us to a deep level of holiness. God calls us to a fully committed level of, of discipleship in our lives. And, and Jesus said uh, here in this passage, that we'll look at in a minute, that there are going to be people that are going to be surprised that they aren't going to get into heaven. And in fact, it's going to get to the level that as they stand before him and kind of say, hey, I, I deserve to get in here, that Jesus is actually going to say to them, I don't even recognize you. Now that's a, that's a hard message on a cold October morning, right? But this is the word of God, and we need to really read and study this uh, because while it is also, uh, while it's a little bit disconcerting maybe, and while it, it really challenges us on the positive side, it's one of the, the clearest and simplest statements uh, that Jesus gives about how we're supposed to live. And kind of the question that we want to ask at the outside is, am I actually living in the way that Jesus calls me to live? Because if we're really going to understand the Word of God and really understand what God is calling us to, we have to look directly at what Jesus says. We have to look right at His words and say, this is the calling. This is the expectation that God has put on my life. So let's read these two passages and then we're going to kind of develop them a little bit this morning. I want to encourage you to write some things down as always, not because I'm talking. My words are worthless. Hopefully the Holy Spirit's going to speak this morning, but write them down because you remember it better. 
Studies again show that if you hear and write down and then act on it, uh, it will be really so much more influential on your life. So Matthew chapter 7, let's start in verse 21, and then I want you to keep your place after we read this, and we'll switch over to uh, Luke chapter 6, okay? Chapter 7, Matthew verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, when are the kingdom of heaven? But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts in them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he's teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Turn over to Luke chapter 6. This is the same passage, and I'll tell you why it's different a little later on. But Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts in them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house in the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. Now, both texts come from the same context. Jesus, right above each of these texts, is warning about the false prophets that were among them, and he says that every person is evidenced, every person's proof of who they are spiritually is proven by their fruit. That's what identifies the condition of our heart. Now, we talked about this last week in our study about the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes. Hopefully you were here or listened to it online. Well, we talked about what Jesus was saying about the Pharisees, uh, excuse me, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, is that where there's arrogance and where there's self-righteousness and there's spiritual uh, hypocrisy, we can ascertain that there's not a humility, there's not a surrender to the Lord, there's not seeking the Lord by faith and walking by faith. Jesus says, every person's known by what comes out of them, or every person's known by their fruit. Doesn't matter what we say, or portray, or, or how we act, ultimately our convictions and our practice uh, work together, and they bear out what we actually are. We can hide it, we can mask it, we can uh, delude ourselves, but ultimately who you are is going to come out. And, and Jesus says, that's how you know who the person is by their fruit. Now here in Luke 6, the second passage that we read, he establishes that there are people who claim to have some relationship with the Lord and even say that he's Lord, but look at what he says here in chapter 6. He says, but they don't do what I say. 
Now that raises a question right here at the outset, and this question's kind of easy to overlook, I think. The question is, why would someone claim to know Christ and not obey Him? Why would someone say, I, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I, I follow Christ, and yet not do what he says, especially in a time where it's really not easy to be identified as a Christian, and it's going to get worse. So, so why would I say, yes, I'm a believer, and then in the other direction, uh, do things that are not obviously according to God's Word, according to what's pleasing to the Lord? Well, we've got to ask that question and figure out what, what's going on here. So, while Jesus' question seems almost rhetorical, like why would someone do that if they say they're, they're a follower of me and they don't do what I say, why would they do it? It almost seems rhetorical, but it's actually very direct. And I believe there can only be four reasons why somebody would say, Lord, Lord, and not do what Jesus says. Here are the four reasons. Number one, the person's not self-aware, that they're just being disobedient. Now, that's, that's hard to believe when the Word of God is so clear and the Spirit's uh, direction is so clear for somebody that's seeking the Lord, it's hard to believe that someone would say, well, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm not, I'm not aware that I'm being disobedient. Because the Bible's very clear when we're disobedient, when we're not. So that would be one reason. The second reason would be that the person assumes that they're doing enough that the Lord doesn't really expect a full surrender, that you can kind of go marginally with Christ and not all the way, and, and, and everything's going to be fine. You just do some good works while you're here, and then because you're saved, God will take you to heaven. So either the person's not self-aware, or they believe they're doing enough, or third, the person's scared of identifying with Christ because of potential repercussions, which means that, that they're not willing to love Him more than anything else. Because Jesus says, if you're my disciple, you need to love me more than anything or anyone else. So maybe the person doesn't want to obey because they're scared that, that someone might know that they're identified with Christ. And yet they'll say, Lord, Lord. And then the fourth reason is the person simply playing a part. It's a, it's a role. It's an act. Yes, I'm a believer and I go to church and, and yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian and, and it's wonderful. But when push comes to shove, when it really comes down to following the Word of God and doing the will of God, the person doesn't want to do it. Now, in each of those four options, the bottom line is well short of satisfying Jesus' criteria. Even though the person has some level of confidence that the relationship's restored, that they're not willing to do what Jesus says. Now, seeing it through that context makes it more significant and, and maybe even intimidating. It's important to make sure that we're right with the Lord, that, that we're taking nothing for granted, that we're not assuming anything, and, and even beyond that, oh, I'm just right with Him, the next step beyond that is, are we pleasing to the Lord? Because we don't want to just get by. Christ didn't go to the cross. Christ didn't endure the suffering and the shame. Christ didn't take our, our sins upon himself and die a brutal death and be buried and then rise again. So as believers, we can say, yeah, I trust that you did that, Jesus. And I'm just going to kind of get by until you come and get me or until I die. That's nowhere in the Bible. 
There's no one in the Bible that you says you just kind of you just kind of skate by. You have your card to get into heaven, and you just kind of do your thing, and and God will forgive your sin, but you can keep sinning and, and just just do do kind of a, a little bit. It is wholehearted. It is everything. It is not double-minded. It is fully-minded. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, not only should we be fully committed, but we should be an example of what a believer looks like. Not about you, but I want that in my life. I know it's not always true. That somebody would look at us and say, now if you want to look at what it is to be committed to Christ, you look at that person. Paul himself even said, follow my example. He wasn't bragging. He wasn't being arrogant. He was saying, look, you guys are young in the faith. If you want to know what it looks like to be a believer, look at me. As I look at Christ, look at me and I'll give you an example of what it's like. Every person that's around us this week, family, friends, coworkers, people on the street, people we run into at the mall, Every person should be able to look at us and go, that's an example of what a believer in Jesus Christ looks like. That's what he's calling us to. So our first point of spiritual evaluation right here is to test whether he can make the statement about us that you are a follower of Christ. Are we faithfully and consistently doing what Christ says? Are we actually obeying him and his word? Because for Jesus, that's the definition of how he knows that we love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, here's how we define it. Here's how you prove that you love me is by obeying me. And when you do that, I promise you that I will give you the Holy Spirit to help you and to guide you and to make you more holy. I've saved you, I've redeemed you, I've delivered you, I've forgiven you. Now that I've secured you with my spirit, now I'm calling you to live according to what you believe. And Romans 12 says that's a reasonable expectation. Now, to further emphasize the point, Jesus uses the example. Look back at the text in Luke 6. He uses this example of a man building a house. Before we examine what he says here, notice that this is a very important and a very um, intentional analogy. Back in Psalm 127, Solomon says, unless the Lord builds the house, they will labor in vain who are building it. And he was mainly talking about building the temple in Chronicles. But spiritually, he's saying that unless the Lord is the architect and the owner of our lives, then, then our life is futile. Our life is aimless unless God is right in the center. And then you go ahead of this text to 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul says, if the earthly tent is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, but one eternal in the heavens. And he's referring to our bodies, which the Bible says are a temple, a house of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, if the temple gets torn down, which it would in 70 AD, if the human structure, the, the physical building gets torn down, and we don't have a place to gather together and worship the Lord, and we know that as a congregation, right? If, if the building's not there, we still are a temple ourselves of the Holy Spirit because he indwells us. So thousands of years apart, the writers are reinforcing, look at the text, what Jesus says here, that our lives are a building 
that is establishing a spiritual foundation. Either the spiritual foundation is rooted in Christ or it's rooted in something other than Christ. Everything other than Christ is inferior and inadequate. Every foundation that's laid for the building that is our lives, which is supposed to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, every foundation other than Christ is inferior and eternally inadequate. So we have to ask ourselves, what am I building spiritually? And what am I building it on? Don't just go through the week, this week, and just survive doing my thing, got my job, got my list, spend some time with the Lord, get to a Bible study, and, 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 and kind of pray about the church, but, but I'm just kind of going through the motion. That's not what the Lord's called us to. It's good, but He's calling us to a wholehearted building, an intentional building of our faith, an intentional building of our maturity, an intentional building each other up in our faith and maturity. That the weak doesn't control us, that we control the weak, especially spiritually. That there is a purpose to what we're doing because Jesus says there are going to be events in their circumstances they are going to test the spiritual foundation. They're going to, they're going to try, uh, to, they're going to be God's way of proving whether we're built on a solid foundation or whether we're built on a tenuous foundation. And he names three things here. Look back at it. He says, There are going to be rains that are going to fall. There are going to be floods that are going to come. And there's going to be wind that's going to blow. And I believe Jesus intentionally lists three different examples here because they represent three distinct kinds of spiritual testing. What's the rain? The rain is the common difficulties that hit us every day. The things that inconvenience us. The things that challenge our endurance. But never really overwhelm us to the point of giving up. When it rains, you kind of go, snap. i got to get an umbrella. I probably put on a coat. i got to run the wipers in the car. I'm going to get wet running into the building. But, but it doesn't overwhelm us. It's just an inconvenience. It's a, it's a bother. It's something we've got to deal with. These are the little tests of life. The little things that are our proving ground that kind of reveal our attitude and kind of show who we really are. Those, those are the rains of life. Then there are the floods of life. The floods of life are the issues that deluge us. Not only physically and emotionally, but spiritually. James 1 says that these are the trials that get to the core of how we really react and whether we really love and trust God and whether we're really willing to sacrifice ourselves to be completely like Christ. So the rains, the the daily inconveniences, the floods are the big trials in life that, that really overwhelm us, that test us. And then there are the winds. Just as we think the floods are done, then the winds come along and the winds test the durability of our faith. Because James 1 says that our faith can't be wavering. As we get blown around by spiritual warfare, as we get blown around by the desires in our lives, we we either are stable and secure, or we're unstable and insecure. Disciples were out on the boat in the Galilee, and the winds came up, and the rain came along, and they were frightened, and they were worried, and they're wondering whether they're to bail out of the boat, and they see Jesus sleeping, and they're like, why don't you help us? What's your problem? Come through for us. Come on now. We're about to be swamped. Jesus says, what are you worried about? Where's your faith? 
So the winds are going to blow. And they're going to toss us around. And Jesus is saying, your faith has to be unwavering. So you've got the rain, you've got the floods, and you've got the wind. And as we build this house, there is an unmistakable evidence of what kind of foundation we have. There are only two foundations. He lists it twice. The only difference between the two foundations, between the rock and the sand, is whether or not we're fully committed to obeying Christ. There's not three foundations. There's not eight foundations. There's not 800 foundations. There are two foundations, rock or sand. And the only difference is whether we're fully committed to obeying Him. And that's not a small difference because our choice determines the nature of the foundation. If we love Him, if we trust Him, if we serve Him completely, the foundation will be rock. It will be deep and firm and unshakable and secure for our lives. It can't be shaken by the rain. It can't be shaken by the flood. It can't be shaken by the wind. It's well built. Now the problem with the rock foundation in this life is it's not very attractive. You rarely find a rock foundation in a place that's scenic or a place where you go, wow, or a place that's really exciting. Rock foundations are solid and dependable. And that's the problem because our heart and our mind seeks after what's flashy and exciting and fresh and new. Security is not a word that we gravitate toward. Consistency, faithfulness, those, those aren't words that describe our culture or describe the cravings of our culture. And yet, they're the words that describe believers. But if we love ourselves more, and we're willing to trust ourselves and serve ourselves instead of Christ, and that's a lot easier than we think, because remember, he's talking to people who are quite sure that they were right with God. If we love ourselves and trust ourselves and serve ourselves more than Christ, then he says, excuse me, that the foundation is sand. It's a material that shifts and, and, and slips and erodes and has no foundational integrity. There's no foundational security with sand. If you don't believe that, go down to the beach when it's not 40 outside and build a sandcastle right by the water and then wait for the water to come in and see if that sand has foundational integrity. Sand doesn't, by nature, have any security, even though sometimes it seems like it does, but that's delusion, and that's the delusion that the devil brings to us. He portrays building on sand as the quick, easy, best solution for our lives. So he promises instant gratification, and he promises pleasure, and, and materialism, and self-centeredness, and he, he nuances it. He changes the names of it so it doesn't seem like it's something that wouldn't be spiritually beneficial. And he promises worldliness and self-reliance. He says, that's the best alternative. Instead of trusting in the Lord, which is boring, who wants to persevere and who wants to walk worthy and who wants to be faithful and deny themselves and lay up their treasures in heaven? Come on, you need, you need stuff now. You need, you need the flash now. You need everything you can now. Discipline, that's for suckers. You follow after what's exciting and new. But you know what the devil is? He's a crooked contractor. He's a wicked real estate agent. He withholds the important information about all the problems in the property. 
He sells the car that, that's been through damage, and, and he doesn't give you the inspection report. He just says, it's fine. It looks great. The, the building's got great integrity. There's never been any problem with it. But the reality is there are so many problems, and there are going to be more problems because they've never been fixed. He doesn't play straight. And then when the wind comes, and the rain comes, and the flood comes, you find the damage. Let me show you some pictures of this as an example because I want to illustrate this as best as we can. I went on a missions trip to Venezuela in 2000, right after they had experienced uh, very major rains and significant mudslides. They actually, uh, the mudslides killed thousands of people, left 350,000 people homeless. About 80% of the population in Venezuela in 1990 was, was poor. I'm not sure that's changed. And many people were living in shanty towns on the sides of the mountains outside of Caracas. I can remember driving up from the airport and seeing these, these huts built of like cardboard and, and very weak steel just sitting on the slope of the hillside outside of Caracas. Houses were called ranchos, and they're very illegal and very dangerous. And in a typical rainy season, about 200 of them uh, uh, every year would get swept away. But they were the only option for a lot of people because so many people were poor and the Chavez uh, administration was so evil and corrupt uh, and, and didn't give them anything other than what was on a very weak foundation. Well, if you toss up the first picture, Paul, in the winter of 1999, heavy rains produced avalanches of mud that were up to 20 feet high. And these avalanches just swept the houses away. Thousands of people, thousands of houses were just swept down the hill. Entire neighborhoods were washed away. And, and for days and weeks, people just stood on the roofs of their houses if they still existed and begged for help. But there was no organized relief effort whatsoever. I think he's got a second picture there if you'd show that. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said the rains and the floods will come and the houses that are on a poor foundation will wash away. Now, that's not just Caracas, Venezuela. If you look at the next picture, this is L.A., La Jolla. La Jolla is a very, 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 very wealthy part of Los Angeles. And a lot of people have built million-dollar mansions right on the tops of cliffs overlooking the Pacific. The, the view is spectacular. If you've ever been to California and see the views from La Jolla, I mean, it just takes your breath away. But people have foolishly built houses right on the edge of the cliff, which is great when you look out your den and you see the ocean, but it's a problem when there's rain, which is not real common in Southern California, but it does happen. And over the last 10 or 15 years, there have been rains that have eroded the hillside under these houses, and they just fall into the ocean. I think there's a second slide there, if you would, Paul, of, of these houses that, that are sitting in beautiful spots, but as soon as the rain comes, because they're built on a poor foundation, they just slip. There's one more I want to show you from Texas, where the same thing happened. This is an illustration of where Jesus says it collapsed, and the fall of that house was great. Doesn't matter whether it's a little poor hut or whether it's a humongous mansion. The key is the foundation that it's put on. Now, go back to the text and apply this spiritually because Jesus uses this point as an example for our lives. He says the results are obvious 
and they're observable. And there's a conclusion that we can draw about the value of each foundation. So the Matthew 7 text says, and let's actually turn back to that for a minute because we'll spend the rest of our time there. If you go back to the Matthew 7 text, he says that what is wise, that's exactly what the word means, wise, what's prudent, what's smart, is when we hear the words and we act on them. The two go together and they can't be separated. If we hear and don't act, then we're hypocrites. If we act, but it's not a conviction, then we, we aren't really in it and we're fooling ourselves because we're doing something without any heart behind it. So wisdom is hearing his words and acting on his words. Foolishness, the second option, the word there not only means foolish, but it means godless. Foolishness is to hear his word and not act on it. Now in both cases, there's the same advantage. Hearing the word of God. But instead of acting on it, in the second case, the person makes the wrong decision and willfully disobeys the Lord. And when the three difficulties come, and there's a lack of conviction that's revealed, there's no foundation to stand on. And the person goes to God and says, well, Lord, Lord, Lord I, I served you. But Jesus says, you didn't do what I said. Your life didn't evidence what you're saying you believe. Now, that's the first of the three times, the Luke passage, you don't have to turn back. That's the first of the th three times that Jesus uses that phrase. And it's interesting, you may have noticed as we read, that the texts were a little bit different. The, the, the things that Jesus says are a little bit different. And that is in large part because Matthew and Luke were writing to different audiences. Each of the Gospels had a different audience. That's why while there are similarities in what they talk about, what Jesus did, there are differences in what they highlight. Mark doesn't have the story of the nativity, while Luke spends two chapters on it. Everybody talks about the death and resurrection because that's so critical. But there are parables that are in some that are not in others. There, there are the same story here in Matthew 7 and in Luke 6. The same text, the same words of Jesus, and yet each of them presents something different. Why is that? Well, Matthew was written to the Jews. Matthew was writing to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah and that he had fulfilled the law and that he had become the sacrificial lamb who atones for sin once and for all. So as Matthew's recording the words of Jesus, he's writing to a Jewish audience saying, look, you've got to be convinced because you're still stuck in the Pharisees and the Sadducees' lack of truth and, and you're saying that the Messiah still needs to come. I'm telling you, he already came. And you need to trust Jesus as the Messiah and as the Savior. So Matthew's to the Jews. I'll explain how that fits in a second. Luke is written to the Gentiles. He was a Gentile doctor. So he writes to convince them of what he has seen and heard and call the reader to faith in Christ. Each of the writers, Matthew and Luke, wants to convince you based on the evidence that Jesus is who he says he is and you need to trust him. But Matthew writes to the Jews and Luke writes to the Gentiles. Now why does that matter? How does that influence how they write differently? Well, look back at Matthew chapter 7 because Matthew focuses on Jesus' words to the false religious leaders of Israel. 
who were self-righteous and discounted Jesus' miracles. Luke focuses on Jesus' words to the Gentiles who rejected obedience to his truth because they favored Gnosticism. The Gentiles believed that all you had to do was be knowledgeable. All you had to do was attain a level of intelligence, and that would bring higher enlightenment. You didn't need a Savior. You just needed to become smarter. I'm simplifying, but that's the bottom line. The Jews were stuck in the law, got to fulfill the law, even though the Old Testament proved they couldn't. Israel's history proved they couldn't. We got to do the law. We've got to accomplish. We've got to do. We've got to be. So, so each has a different target. So the writers concentrate on that. Luke says, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, you're not doing what I say. There's a lack of obedience. You don't trust the truth. And that causes you to build on sand, even though the word is clear and it's right, and you're called to obey without equivocation or compromise. Then we get, I'm almost done, look at Luke 7, or Matthew 7. We get two Lord Lords in the Matthew 7 passage. In one, Jesus says, not everyone will be in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because there's a lack of holiness. Only those who do the will of the Father will enter. Well, what is the will of God? 1 Thessalonians 4.3, the will of God is our sanctification. Now, you can't be sanctified without faith in Christ because once you have faith in Christ, he transfers us from darkness to light, from death to life. He changes our nature. He removes our sin, and he gives us his Holy Spirit. So that's the, that's the placement. That's the declaration of sanctification. That when God looks at your life and my life, He only sees holiness. But then there is walking in sanctification. And while we've been declared holy, transferred from, ho uh, from darkness to holiness, while, while we are given His Holy Spirit, if there isn't obvious holiness throughout our walk, and we're not consistently living as disciples, how can we claim that we know him? Now, let me say that again. If God has declared us righteous, transferred us into holiness, and given us his Holy Spirit to indwell us, if there is not consistent holiness in our lives, how can we say he's my Lord? That's Jesus' point here. So there are going to be people that are going to stand before God and say, well, Lord, Lord, I, I, I trusted in you. And Jesus says, where's the holiness? Well, I didn't think it was important or it just, it, it, I had other things I wanted to do. He says, well, then there's really no evidence that you've been transformed. And then there's a third one. He says, there are those of you that prophesy and cast out demons and do miracles, but you are not mine because you don't love me. I don't know about you, but I've never prophesied. I've never cast out demons. I've never done miracles. So you go, wow, look at what they're doing. They're, they're doing amazing outward works. And yet Jesus says they're meaningless because you don't know me. You don't know me as Savior. 1 Corinthians 13 says you can do all the signs and wonders in the world. You can speak in tongues. You can prophesy. You can declare this and this and this. You can do miracles. But if you don't have love, it's worth zero. Love for the Lord. Love for other people. We can concentrate on gifts. We can concentrate on works. But what really matters is the sincerity of heart for the Lord. 
So let's bring it down. What's he saying? He's saying a lack of obedience, a lack of holiness, a lack of love produces one result. And this is where it gets very difficult. Look back at the verse just for a minute. We're going to pray. He says, when I see that, I will say to the person, I never knew you. Get away from me. There's no way to, to make that sentence easy. Why does he say that? He says that because instead of holy obedience and a loving, dependent heart for Christ, the person practices lawlessness. And I want you to notice there, there's no middle ground. We are either completely committed to Christ with everything that we have, or God says, I don't recognize you. I want to say that again. We're either completely committed to Christ, to holiness, with everything that we have, or God says, I don't recognize you. If we really trust Christ and our lives are really committed to him as Lord, then our actions will evidence that. That's the whole point of the book of James. He says you can have faith, but if your, ev- your actions don't evidence that, then your faith really is worthless. Action is birthed out of conviction that is true. That what the gospel says, that what the Bible says is true. When you're convicted about that, and you're convicted that it's right, and you're convicted that it's necessary, your actions will follow. Everything in life is born out of conviction. What are you convicted about this morning? Is Christ your Savior? Is Christ your Lord? Is He everything? Can you not imagine a day without Jesus? Can you not imagine what it would be like if you didn't have Jesus saving you and indwelling you and helping you and you didn't have His Word and you couldn't call on His name? If, if that's just unthinkable to you, then your conviction about that's going to drive who you are. But if you're shaky or wishy-washy or, or it's just kind of a thing, then the foundation's going to be insecure. If the Bible isn't the only guide of truth, if this word isn't what you live by and you hunger for it and you pour over it and you study it and you say, I've got to change because of this, then the foundation will be weak. And temptation will come and will yield to it. And moral compromise will will come knocking and will say, well, let me open the door to that and just see what's going on. And worldliness will tempt us and will say, well, that's fine. Maybe I can give in a little bit. Action is bred out of conviction. And that not only impacts us, but it impacts other people. You know, witnessing isn't just sharing the four spiritual laws or just telling somebody about the gospel. Witnessing is showing people this is what transformation looks like. This is what living out biblical conviction looks like. One day, every one of us is going to stand before the Lord. And he's going to say, all right, let's talk about your life. I want to know what you believed and how you lived. He already knows it. But he's going to hold us accountable. And when we stand before him, listen now, I know it's loud downstairs, but listen just for a minute. When we stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, is he going to say to us, you didn't do what I said. You didn't obey me, you didn't trust me, 
And as sad as it is, because I don't want anybody to perish, I've got to send you away because I don't know, you're not mine. Or when we stand before the Lord, will he be pleased and will heaven rejoice? And will he look at us and say, well done, you have been faithful and you have walked with me and you have trusted me and you have obeyed me. Don't be quick to answer that question. Really, really analyze it in your heart right now because there is a definite prerequisite. It, it's not just, I prayed a prayer in 1976 and I'm good. It's not just, well, I come to church and, and, and I give and I serve and, and, and isn't that enough? Well, I do good works and I, I, I'm a just person and I love people and I'm kind. Those are wonderful things. But is there unmistakable evidence of a holy transfer and a holy transformation that has taken place that we will never turn back on? Lord, Lord, will heaven say, well done. Come on in. You have walked faithfully with the Lord. That shows our love for his grace and our acceptance of the new life that he's provided that we're willingly conformed to Christ. Christ.